This is Shame and the Pandemic. I'm Paul McNally. Let's start today's episode with the term saving face. Saving face is an expression that we're probably all familiar with in English, which basically means the attempt to avoid reputation damage or avoid harming your reputation such that other people lose respect for you or start to think less of you. This is Professor Luna Dolezal. She's an associate professor in philosophy and medical humanities at the University of Exeter. Saving face is something that we all routinely engage in. And it's something that also larger bodies like governments or corporations or communities also engage in. It's about reputation management, keeping good standing, keeping social capital, maintaining one's position, often position of authority or power. And what's important to remember is that no one is immune from this act of wanting to save face. Here's Dr. Arthur Rose. He's a research fellow in medical humanities at the University of Exeter to elaborate. Saving face was also used to explain Japan's delayed decision to cancel the 2020 Olympics and Pakistan's return to work on the Belt and Road project. During the COVID-19 crisis, saving face and its corollary losing face emerged as effective drivers that explained the policy decisions of some nation states and organizations. Now, what is, of course, interesting is that there was a, a strong Orientalist tendency to associate this face-saving with Asian countries. So China, Japan, Pakistan, all countries that then were associated with essentialist ideas of shame cultures. Now, shame cultures is, of course, a term that was first popularized by the cultural anthropologist Ruth Benedict in her 1946 book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which differentiated cultures according to the prevalent use of either shame or guilt in ensuing, ensuring social order and conformity. And um, it's been heavily criticized, for, rightly so, for its cultural essentialism. But what we almost see in the way in which Saving Face gets deployed in the early pandemic to talk about Asian countries is precisely this essentializing gesture. That is not to say that Saving Face was not at work in these particular situations. It's to ignore the extent to which Saving Face was also dominant in the UK's um, health policies. For instance, the focus on achieving X number of tests a day. As we know, on April the 2nd, 2020, the UK then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, outlined a five-pillar testing plan with the goal of achieving 100,000 tests a day by the end of April was already a revision of an earlier target of 250,000 tests a day set by the UK Prime Minister or then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but it did become a central feature of the government's daily briefings. This number of daily tests was often enumerated alongside figures of the infected and the deceased. So it became a point of fixation that detracted both from the deaths and the government's continuing failure to source adequate amounts of PPE. On the 1st of May, Hancock announced with audible emotion that the audacious target had been reached with 122 
thousand tests carried out on the 30th of April. The figure was immediately set upon by various people because it it included something like 39,000 testing kits that had only been mailed on the 30th and hadn't actually been used yet or hadn't been returned. But what it sets up is a kind of paradigm that Operation Moonshot will then continue. And this is where we get into the meat of what we are talking about in this episode, Operation Moonshot. For this, let's move to 10 Downing Street, where we are waiting for Boris Johnson to come out and speak. It's the 9th of September, 2020. Good afternoon, and welcome back to Downing Street for an update on coronavirus as we enter autumn and approach winter. Boris Johnson is uh, doing what has become a regular weekly coronavirus press briefing. He announces an alternative plan to return life closer to normality. We are simplifying and strengthening the rules, making them easier for everyone to understand and for the police to enforce. The plan he proposes will use testing to identify people who are negative, who don't have coronavirus and who are not infectious, so we can allow them to behave in a more normal way, in the knowledge they cannot infect anyone else with the virus. Over the summer, we've therefore been working up an alternative plan, which could allow life to return to closer to normality. And uh, that plan is based on mass testing. Up to now, if you think about it, we've been using testing primarily to identify people who are positive so that we can isolate them from the community and protect high-risk high risk groups. And that will continue to be our priority. We're working hard to increase our testing capacity to 500,000 tests a day by the end of October. But in future, in the near future, we hope, we want to start using testing to identify people who are negative, who don't have coronavirus, who are not infectious. So we can allow them to behave in a more normal way in the knowledge that they can't infect anyone else with the virus. Our plan, Johnson continues, this moonshot that I'm describing will require a great collaborative effort from government, business, public health professionals, scientists, logistics experts, and many, many more. At the time, his plan was criticized for being, quote, devoid of any contribution from scientists, clinicians, public health, and testing and screening experts, end quote. And also, it disregarded enormous problems with the existing testing and tracing program. So it eventually kind of disappears from the government's agenda and is relegated to the dustbin of history. Question is, why is this such an important moment to think about? It's so illustrative of a general tendency on the part of the UK government during the pandemic, and especially in the first year, to attempt to find ways of saving face. And here it really links into the question of shame. Now we can hear from Dr. Fred Cooper. He's a research fellow at the University of Exeter. Operation Moonshot is a really good example of a policy that has come about through a need to save face. So shame is present in Operation Moonshot as a a causative factor, as something that is being 
reacted and responded to by the people making the policy. And that's one of the many reasons why it's bad, because shame is there as a, a goad to policymaking. This is US President JFK on September the 12th, 1962, at Rice University in the United States. Even though I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision, for we do not now know what benefits await us. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field. What is clear is that this is about reputation management. It's reputation management for JFK, it's reputation managed for Boris Johnson. Both are facing difficult political climates in which past failures are really coming to haunt them. For JFK, we're not just talking about specific race against the Soviets in terms of space. We're also, the speeches that he gives in 61 and 62 are, you know, soon after the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening. These are kind of major world-defining events. And getting one over on the Russians is going to look good for business. The great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. When historians interpret this, and I think they interpret it rightly, they also factor the in that by this point, the Russian um, space agency has had the first successful animal in space, they've had the first successful human in space, they are definitely ahead in terms of what people think of as a space race. And really this kind of investment in in a man on the moon is Kennedy's response of how do we how do we up the stakes and also put ourselves ahead. Um, so it really is like links to this face-saving thing um, where, you know, and I mean, it, it, where it where it becomes an interesting compliment, I think, to Boris Johnson's uh, moonshot, is that for Kennedy, he takes an obviously partisan policy decision and rhetorically codes it in a way that can be about the general human species achievement on the part of the general human species. What Boris Johnson does is he takes something which quite plausibly could be seen as uh, an endeavor on the part of the general human species, the desire to create a system that will allow people to manage living with the virus and successfully codes it as something that the UK will do as part of its kind of crypto-nationalist or not-so-crypto-nationalist um, uh, attempts to... Uh, justify Brexit, justify 
themselves as having the quote-unquote best contact tracing system in Europe. And this is what happens again and again in the, in the descriptions of the moonshot will be comparisons with Europe, with the UK or Britain, always coming out as the best, the most, the superlative. And how does this compare to the situation with Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson is not just dealing with the fact that he's promised people to lighten up on restrictions and is looking towards a increasingly dangerous autumn um, winter. He's, he's also having to deal with the increasing numbers of uh, critical outputs that are coming, not just from places that are regularly critical of a Tory government like The Guardian, but even The Times starts to do searing exposés on the mismanagement of the first stages of the pandemic. The strategy around Boris's moonshot was to keep making the numbers bigger and more audacious. That way he could continue to save face. And in some ways, what actually happened is that the government set up a kind of gambler's ruin paradox in which rather than uh, admit that they were wrong or unable to reach the targets, it was always about setting a, uh, another even greater target that would eclipse uh, any previous failures, whether in, the t in terms of testing or in terms of PPE production. And finally, what do these moonshots have to do with shame? To understand that, you really have to think about how moonshots are generally can be generally associated with attempts to manage reputation, um, indicate uh, how strategies are uh, show people f is saving face. Um, saving face is crucially related to shame avoidance. What happens when you try to when you're saving faces, and this is from the work of Irving Goffman, is you take a kind of a line, and in taking that line, or or crucially, maybe it's it's more explicit to say, people see you taking a particular line, and the extent to which you stand or fall by that line is the way in which people will think of you as saving, keeping face, or losing face. It's a really complicated way of putting it. To put it somewhat simpler, when we interact with people, we see people as having a particular standard of behavior. And the more we interact with them, we the more we solidify our sense that they have a particular standard of behavior. And when people start to perform or act below that standard of behavior, we see them failing to live up to their own standards of behavior. And that's when people start to lose face. The line that particular politicians may take may vary in terms of what it is that we've come to imagine from particular politicians. Nevertheless, we do 
apply to them a certain understanding of what it is that they they're claiming to do and what it is that they're actually doing when when you know those claims come home to roost and the interventions that people will take often in terms of saving face often attempts to reestablish themselves as being above that line or on that line or and so when you get something like a moonshot you can always tell it's at the same time as it's something really uh, imaginative and bold and innovative and claiming a kind of prospective vision for things it it, it also has a kind of smack of desperation because it shows that people want to are trying to bring a policy into place to offset prior disasters and that's really what we saw with the testing the moonshot plan of the mass testing in in the Johnson government was an attempt to offset prior failures to keep to the bold promises that were made this leads the team luna fred and arthur to think about how the work they have been doing around shame can truly help society i sort of then wonder whether maybe that's part of why we're really doing this work really to go how do we try to do things differently you'll see now that the podcast has been building to this point where we can imagine what a shame sensitive approach in society looks like so this is where we consider the huge impact that shame has on the world and then we apply this to public health responses i've been working for a few years with a social scientist colleague matthew gibson from the university of birmingham who has done a lot of research into shame related to professional practice in social work he's a trained social worker and through his research um he saw the need for what he calls shame sensitive practice and um together we recently published a research article outlining principles for shame sensitive practice um which we organized around the principles of the 3 A's which are acknowledging shame avoiding shaming and addressing shame the idea behind shame sensitive practice is to have a set of principles um that can guide practitioners and organizations to practice in ways that don't exacerbate negative forms of shaming and don't create um opportunities for implicit and explicit shaming and that are sensitive to shame experiences that individuals might be having and the idea is to essentially produce better outcomes like there's a growing evidence base that demonstrates that shame is this really powerful affective driver that can negatively impact on how individuals engage with human services whether that's healthcare or public health um which is what we're discussing in this context or you know the police social workers other services that are designed essentially to help people with difficulties or with circumstances or you know with ordinary life course issues shame is a sort of unspoken often invisible force that can interfere with the way that people can benefit from human services so the idea is to bring shame out into the open recognize the impact and effect it can have 
and also to then try and ameliorate that through creating shame competence, teaching people about shame and its effects, how shame dynamics circulate, um, and teaching people, practitioners and organizations to be able to identify implicit and explicit shaming. I think Fred used this phrase, create a shame-proofing toolkit that they can operationalize to try and constantly review practice and policy um, and circumstances within how an organization or institution operates in order to try and take out these negative forms of shame, the shame that can harm people, can lead to um, individuals avoiding encounters with professionals, can lead to withdrawal and secrecy and avoiding avoidance. So we've been thinking about how shame-sensitive practice uh, and theorizing how shame-sensitive practice could be applied in the context of public health you say one phrase where it's like bring it out into the open. Yeah. And it's interesting because in this podcast series, we've spoken a lot about how people don't like to do that, right? They don't mm -hmm. like to talk about it. They don't want to bring it out into the open. So how has been the reception of it? Have, have people been, I guess, understandably resistant or? Yeah, no, I think the reception of this has been really positive insofar as there's sometimes like a, a palpable relief when you kind of name shame and, and sort of you know, acknowledge that it's this force or presence and for individuals who might be experiencing shame or a, a type of shame that might hinder their ability to engage with services or professionals or follow public health guidelines, it's, you know, this can be hugely important to go, yeah, this ex emotional experience I'm having is not trivial. Actually, this can be like a world organizing um, affect or emotion that can have profound effects on how I engage with others, how I engage with institutions. So that's really important. I mean, it's it's tricky because shame is so closely related to power and hierarchy and the sorts of organizations we're talking about, which are like hospitals or public health systems or the police or professionals in all sorts of roles, like social workers, psychologists. There, there's always going to be a power dynamic with individuals engaging with professionals and professional organizations. And so in some sense, shame might end up being an inevitable consequence of, you know, seeking help in, in a healthcare context or seeking help in other ways. And it's having practitioners and organizations understand that. And we're not suggesting that shame will be eliminated because that will never be the case. But we're suggesting that shame competence or awareness of shame and shame dynamics could potentially have a profound impact on how effective policies and practices are. If, if the aim is to help people, especially in a healthcare context or public health context, to ensure better health outcomes, you know, to ensure more um, practices of well-being, then shame competence is absolutely essential to that. Our reflections through the shame lens bring out certain emotional or affective dynamics that are the consequence of public health interventions. But they also highlight opportunities um, for intervention and for change where public health interventions, public health policy, public health discourse and communications can, can be bettered to be more inclusive, more humane less stigmatizing, less divisive and antagonistic. So there are these opportunities that the shame lens affords. It's not really just pointing out all the negative things <laughs> that resulted from the way the pandemic was handled, but really 
using this approach gives a really concrete understanding of the lived realities of individuals on that emotional register and that that emotional kind of lived everyday reality, which is, you know, how we all experienced the pandemic was through our affective, emotional, personal lives and making interventions there that are meaningful, that lead to more empathy, dignity, connection, feelings of belonging. And we really think that there's an opportunity here to learn from what we all live through, which is an extraordinary experience we've had in recent years with the pandemic, you know, unique to our lifetimes, this this experience of these drastic and somewhat draconian public health interventions. So we have an opportunity to change things for the better. And so the aim of our work is to feed into that conversation. You, you want people to be ready, basically, for the idea that someone might experience shame and to somehow kind of yeah. be accommodating to that and just ready for it and sympathetic towards it, right? Yeah, to give an example, a current public health initiative is something called MEC, M-E-C-C, Make Every Contact Count. So the idea is if an individual comes um, to engage with a service, you try in that encounter to make it, let's say, to make it count. So that means, say, an individual is going to a general practitioner because they have a cold or they had co- they have COVID. General practitioner is obliged to say to them if they notice, for instance, they're a smoker or there may be signs that they have a substance dependency or they're overweight or living with obesity, they're obliged to say something about that. So direct them to services. And there is that that might, you know, if they're overweight, gently suggest that they might want to do something about being overweight. And uh, there's evidence that, I mean, this is intensely has the intense potential to be humiliating and shaming for individuals and evidence that people avoid these encounters because they're anticipating this awkward, potentially hugely shaming um, interaction. And people who are going to the doctor because they have a cold don't want to be told that they're too fat, <laughs> you know, in the same in the same interaction when that's not the reason they're going. You know, it's a laudable intervention, but it hasn't thought through the emotional dynamics. Like, you know, not only for the patient who's experiencing this implicit shaming, um, but also for the healthcare professional who has to kind of maybe a person they've never even spoken to before. They're only speaking to them for the ten minute slot allotted to them. Someone, a complete stranger, essentially, and bring up a hugely sensitive topic. And I can guarantee you that anyone who is overweight like knows it. (laughs) They don't need someone to tell them that they should lose weight. I'm sure it's something they live with every day. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame already present. So people who are already living with stigma or with high levels of vulnerability or already living with chronic shame, these sorts of interventions can be hugely damaging. It could mean that that person never goes to the GP again, even if they have a serious health problem. You know, so shame anticipation is a really powerful force. There's a lot of potential for public health to be examined through a shame lens and through the lens of shame-sensitive practice in a way that would make interventions more effective. You've been listening to Shame and the Pandemic. I'd like to give a huge thanks to the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, 
the Wellcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, the University of Exeter, Alice Waterson, the Drama Department's podcasting studio, and all our contributors. This podcast has been produced by Volume. I'm Paul McNally. See you next time. Volume.